Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain Resilience for the Australian Industry Group. And in this podcast, I ask supply chain professionals and influencers and academics and thought leaders, how will we in Australia create supply chains that are resilient? How will, we build, how will we build supply chains sustainably at a time when we are implementing digitalization, decarbonization, and we're managing ongoing disruptions in so many forms? Today, I want to talk about an important issue in our local supply chains, and that's global trade. Global trade affects both upstream and downstream supply chain. It affects those of us who are buying overseas or who have suppliers who are buying and it affects those of us who are selling our products overseas. So to help me answer these questions, my guest today, and I'm excited about it, is my colleague at AI Group and very learned friend, Dr. Jeffrey Wilson. Jeff is the Director of Research and Economics at AI Group, which makes him the perfect guest for what we're going to discuss. But more than just his current role, Jeff has for many years specialised in international economic policy, with a particular focus on how trade and investments shape the Australian industrial and business environment. He's contributed to Commonwealth and state economic strategy development with Indo-Pacific partners, as well as done some, uh, a lot of industry development programs for the critical minerals, the battery sector, and for defence sectors. So having built you up sufficiently, Jeff, how are you? Oh, thanks so much for having me on, James. I was wondering, am I a, a professional, an academic, or a thought leader on this? I'm like, I have, what, what do I get to choose from the, the range of esteemed titles? I think you're all of those things, and that's why you. That's why we went to you when we thought of global trade. Let's go to the. Oh, let's, let's go to the very expectations for the listeners carefully. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, look, I want to talk about global trade uh, and. In all seriousness, I've been a big fan of your work for a long time. And it's not just me. You've written very well-received papers on the critical minerals value supply chain in Australia. You've done some great work on geoeconomics, which is a, um, a, a term I love. Uh, and you've recently done some detailed work in defence industry supply chains. How did you get interested in supply chains and global trade in the first place? Oh, well, I, I stupidly actually did a PhD in global data chains, which I think would make me one of the few people in the country that has bothered to go through that whole process. But it really came out like I'm, I'm a trade policy specialist by training and trade. And when you're looking at a lot of modern trade issues, they're really supply chain issues. Um, a lot of people think about trade in a very like a kind of post-World War II context where we were setting up a global trading system. So there were standard rules and we were trading finished products. So Australia would export wheat or coal or iron ore or something and we would buy stuff back. But the real tr transition that you've seen in the last 30 years is, I mean, what they, the specialists call this trade in intermediate goods. But this is these emergence of global supply chains where, with you know, a lot of stuff, there can be five or even up to 10 different steps in transforming the products of nature into the iPhone that's in your pocket or something like that. And so the trade system is become less about, I'll make one product, you make the other and we'll exchange them, that whole, that old idea you get from Adam Smith or David Ricardo. And it's really about these global value chains, corporate networks where we're, we have a lot of different participants. Um, we're seeing the fragility of those networks during the pandemic now, but actually how do you sell a trade system that manages 
something like that. It's a very different proposition to the way the trade system was set up 70 years ago. Yeah, let's get, let's get back to that uh, about the, the current trade system. It seems to me that, you know, thinking about what you're just saying, you know, we started off with the mercantile era with ships sailing the seven seas and trading. And the idea then uh, by all the reading was import very little, export everything as possible. And then, you know, the great Scotsman, every good conversation starts with the great Scotsman, by the way, said James Scotland. Uh, Adam Smith wrote uh, The Wealth of Nations where he said many things. I know, there's a lot in there, but basically he said free trade works best. A wealth of nation is built by free trade. Just let everyone trade with each other. And that was a great idea, except the big countries won all the time. And so we end up with this, like you said, the GATT in 1948 and World Trade Organization in the 1900s, where we started looking at a rules-based trading system and we got a rules-based trading system rather than just this sort of free-for-all. But I noticed, Jeff, and this, you know, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. I noticed that in the last few years, we've started talking about bringing in tariffs let's reduce our our imports you know globally i'm talking about not talking about australia um reshoring home shoring moving away from from global trade i would think that for australia that's not such a good idea but i also think it's probably not going to work globally have we seen any results yet about how that's working is reshoring going to happen are we going to put up barriers around sovereign countries or are we going to go back to the old global trade system we knew in the 1990s and 2000s? Yeah, I mean, this is a really hard question because if you read papers, you try and engage with the media, trade is not a popular topic and a lot of people have a negative attitude towards it. Certainly this hasn't been helped by former US President Donald Trump who had basically viewed trade in a very mechanistic terms. We export more to you and import less from you. Um, and, you know, is responsible for trade philosophies uh, such as the following. Trade wars are good and easy to win, was uh, Trump's stated trade philosophy. So there you go. But we can actually bring a bit of like quantitative data onto this, elevated from anecdote to, to data. Um, there's an outfit in uh, the University of St. Gallen in Switzerland called Global Trade Alert, and they're effectively a group that monitors whenever a country around the world change, changes their trade policy in some way for the better or for the worse, for the purposes of open trade. Um, and they've been keeping this database uh, since 2009, so we've got nearly 15 years of records of every single trade measure everyone's made. Um, and the, the results are pretty sobering. Um, they code trade uh, changes to trade policy as to whether they're um, liberalising or restrictive, so do they open or close. And the rate over the, that period has been about five protectionist measures to every one liberalising measure that they get. So if you look at their database, about 27,000 protectionist measures up against only about 5,000 of that. So the gap's pretty wide. And, and we could cite that at a macro level as evidence you know, sometimes these policies are very small. It's not things like Trump's trade wars where he whacks a 15% tariff on steel or something and that gets a headline. Often very small, minute changes that are only going to affect a small number of businesses. But we really see, you know, that what that says is that we're not in that kind of 1990s era of trade liberalisation where the barriers were coming down. They are being re-erected. The question is where and what do you do and how do you sustain a supply chain in an environment where we've had a decade of slowly creeping protectionism and politically there's no reason to think that's not going to change in the medium term future you know if you're in an industry you're trying to engage in this trade in one of those complex global supply chains 
how do you manage that? It's a, it's it's the big challenge for supply chain managers today that we hadn't had to deal with ten years ago. What, what's your understanding when they talk about reshoring? So you know the the great global. When I when I did my degree in international business, they said an international company is one that operates out of say Melbourne and has business all around the world. Whereas a global company doesn't operate out of anywhere. The Nikes and the Apples, where they have production facilities all around the world and there is no true home base. What's your prediction for this reshoring? Are we going to move away from those global organisations? I, I know you just said it's hard, hard to say, but there must be some sort of feel as to whether or not that's possible from an economic point of view. From a supply chain point of view, I don't get it, but I'll lean on your economics understanding. Well, there's, there's always been a bit of an emotional appeal about this. I'm sure anyone has heard that, you know, we should we should make that thing in this country or we shouldn't sell the farm. You know, President Obama once famously said that the iPhone should be made in the United States, not China, when he was the president. Um, but what's interesting is that there's a very strong focus on the size of manufacture in those kind of discourses and not actually on the value add in some of these things. Because even if you have five or ten different countries involved in a the, the network that makes a finished good, they're not all getting five or ten equal shares of the cut. Um, and, and, you know, there's a, a lot of studies have been done on the iPhone. It's a large product and a lot of commercial people try and un, de, re, reverse engineer it and work out how Apple, you know, what's the magic in their supply chain because it's one of the most finely cut ones in the world. And they look at this and they actually see that, you know, probably about two-thirds of the value add and therefore the profit of the iPhone goes to Apple in California even though very little and in some, on some occasions none of the actual physical assembly of parts is done in that country. Hmm. So there's kind of two things that you've got to look at here. One is the where is it done, but the second is where is the value generated and captured. They're not necessarily the same place. Where, where this comes back to Australia is it's really thinking about what our niche in the global economy is. You know, could we reshore? Probably not. Australia is a high-skill, high-wage country, um, and for a lot of the products, if we were making them here, no one would be able to afford them simply because of the nature of the wage rates we've got here. But you can think is just because your product is not necessarily made in Australia doesn't mean that that's not necessarily generating value. And a niche for Australia is a high-skill, high-knowledge economy is actually in those niches where a lot of the value is generated. This is often not always necessarily in the manufacturing bit itself, but it could be in the services parts, the intellectual property, the product design, the marketing, all of those things. Um, so, you know, when we think about supply chains and who, where it's done and who benefits, the question's really got to be about where's the value generated and how can we as a small skilled economy find a niche in that rather than saying, well, the bit where the lid was put on the jar was in that country and we want that done here. Moving away from the physical to the intangible part is, you know, is going to be the thing that determines whether we succeed or don't succeed in the global economy. Uh, are you saying that digitalisation then will help us because digitalisation takes away tyranny of distance? I'm thinking of things like we can, we, we can, run, we can run hydrogen plants from Australia because we have technology, the techno, technological knowledge here but we don't need to actually be on site if we're doing it through digital is that what we're talking about by value add or are you thinking something else uh it partially refer value add partially refers to like who gets the profit of something a product that's made not necessarily does the manufacturer the manufacturing stage might have a very small return on it um, mm. but there is a point in terms of like also you could probably think about digitization even in terms of like automation bringing technology to bear on an otherwise physical process 
Um, and you know, Australia does have some niches in this which we're well best. And uh, one of those is a spillover from the Australian resource and mining sector um, in terms of uh, remote site operations and automation. Um, a lot of people would like to think of a mine, you know, if it's an iron ore mine or a coal mine or a copper mine as kind of something that's, you know, the Romans had mines for that stuff, so it's really old tech. Um, some of the highest tech stuff in the global economy uh, is the Australian mining industry today. Um, the level of, sim simply because wages are so high in that industry, and also the work conditions are pretty bleak. If you've ever spoken to a FIFO, they can tell you about that. There's a significant amount of automation there to the point that a lot of Australian mining companies can run their do a lot of the operation remotely from someone like me sitting in a nice air-conditioned desk here in Perth rather than in the burning sun out in the desert. Um, and that's a really important skill because what it does is it creates a skill and knowledge base in the Australian economy that can then be applied elsewhere, not just in the resource sector. You've got mining and energy companies that are training people in those skills. They're getting experience doing that. Um, they're getting qualified, they're getting an international experience of how to put that into a larger business process. Um, and then those people can go out and work and seed that knowledge base across a whole other set, set of Australian um, industries. And so what we'd really be looking to do in doing that, and this is how you do digitisation and automation if you're not in resources, is that you're lucky that you're in Australia because you've got this huge, skilled, trained up, you know, track record workforce that's done it on a mine where there's billions of dollars behind it to afford that. And now how can we take that knowledge and unlock it and spill it over into the rest of the industry? I don't think that's something that we've been good at in Australia. But again, if we want to find a place where we can, we can thrive as a high-skilled economy, that's what we're going to need to do. And one of the nice things about that is that we're on the, the, the opposite time zone from the rest of the world, if you like. So when the German operators are sleeping, we're awake. So we could run it from here because this suits our time zones. And certainly Rio Tinto in Perth is already doing a lot of automation from Perth. I've also heard a lot of talk saying that there's no reason for to ever send a person underground into a coal mine ever again once we get things things done. If we can fight wars by drones, we can certainly yeah, extract coal by, 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 by drones. There was a report back to Global Trade, uh, not just value add. There was a report from Merce that said that they looked at where their containers are moving around the world and they're not seeing a reduction based on, on uh, home shoring. They're, they're just seeing a, a realignment of where people are, are buying from. Do you think that's something that will happen, that we'll continue to see the global trade, the global trade uh, continue? We'll just see it shift in, in sort of shape a little bit. I'm thinking, I guess, you know, China and the trade wars and all that sort of stuff. Well, I mean, you've got a couple of factors that are driving companies thinking about what the geography of their supply chain looks like. Um, and there's a political element to that. Um, we've seen that in the US-China trade war, which actually saw some textile production moved from China back to Mexico, not to the United States because it was too expensive, but it actually came back to Mexico because it was close to market um, at similar wage rates. Um, we've also seen Australia's had a number of political issues and, you know, have got billions of dollars of trade suspended with China for the last two years with no obvious end in sight. Um, we've had the Russia situation as well, where a lot of countries have put sanctions on, um, which are designed quite rightly to forestall Russia's warfighting capability by, you know, banning the import of certain products that helps pay for the war effort or the export of our high-tech products that, you know, support it as well. Um, so we've seen all of those things have been, have been big supply chain interrupters. 
And then there's also been the pandemic on top of that, which in the early stages hit everybody. There was a ship, shipping issue. Certainly air freight was badly damaged and we suffered from that in Australia if you were an exporter of a, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical or horticulture product that was dependent on air, cold air freight. Um, but this is going on in China with its continued attachment to a zero COVID strategy. You know, we still see from in Chinese industrial production, the pandemic is only just hitting now with snapshot lockdowns in factories and things like that, which is trickling back to us. So you've kind of, once you put the pandemic and the geopolitics together, everyone's looking at this and saying, do I have all my, too many eggs in a single basket? And most companies are finding that the answer is yes, and that that basket is a Chinese basket, because, and, which is quite reasonable. For 30 years, China was a reliable, trusted, improving capacity place to manufacture things. And if you're in a cost reduction mode, as you are in good times, you're thinking, well, how can I do it cheaper and faster? That's my priority. As a supply chain manager, you're going to go to the place where everybody else is that produces the best result. But the politics and the pandemic adds this extra kind of risk matrix over the top, and it creates incentive to say, well, we need to, we need to shift a few eggs out of that basket. This isn't a, we're not doing business with China or in China anymore, and it's not necessarily bringing it home, but it is we need to be in a couple of different sites because if you're in four places and one of them goes down, it's much uh, lower impact than if you're in one place and that goes down, which people that are China only are finding. So this has turned into this, it's called China Plus One strategy, um, and a country that's benefited from this significantly has been Vietnam. Um, so a country that's got similar industrial profile, in some cases lower wages, where if you're adding the next production site into your chain, you might be actually looking to do some stuff in Vietnam um, rather than just China to give you a hedge against those factors. Um, we've certainly seen, I mean, the big one was Apple for the first time this uh, just about a month ago has decided it's moving iPad production, not all of it, but some of the iPad production out of mainland China to Vietnam. And that's the first time it's done final assembly on any of its iPad products outside of the PRC. Um, so we, you know, when you have that happening at this level, this is going to be a trajectory that's going to continue. Um, it's some people view this as decoupling and we're getting out of China and that kind of thing. It's a bit of a, it, it's that exaggerates what's going on here, but it's really saying in a time of complexity and difficulty where absolute lowest cost is not only the only factor that matters anymore, we need to have a bit more resilience in the system. How can we bring some more players in? And countries like Vietnam and Mexico are going to be the ones that are really going to benefit from that um, diversification drive. And so that's why you're on this podcast, because you bring this 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 uh, this colour to what are some pretty simple statements you hear about. Okay, let's move away from China. Let's reshore. But it's much more complex than that, isn't it? Two other things that are also playing into supply chains is carbon miles. So you sort of you know want to reshoring says. To a degree, well, then let's bring it home because then we don't have so many car so much carbon miles attached to our products, uh, and that may affect Australia in the long run in terms of sales if we can't can't fix that. Um, and the other one is just the cost and availability of freight. The the the, the lockdown of Shanghai Port is just throwing the whole global container system out, and that just means it's expensive and inefficient. How do you see those two uh, factors playing into global supply chain? Well. The carbon, the carbon issue is interesting. So what we've got now is pretty much a situation where most countries around the world have committed to a net zero by 2050 and sometimes they have intermediate targets between now and then and they're in, they've either got systems in place or are doing something in place to price carbon. That could be direct prices, it could be command and control, it could be an emissions trading scheme, et cetera, et cetera. 
But there's this big problem in the tray system called, I'm sure many of you have heard of it, carbon leakage, which is this idea that if, say, Australia says we're going to have a carbon price of a certain level, then manufacturers just go, okay, we'll relocate production to a different country. It doesn't I don't have to pay that. Send it back to Australia as an export, and we can avoid this. So let's um, put a tariff on, eh? <laughs> well, so, so here's where it comes from. Like, except in some like political nirvana or something where every country in the world agrees to have a carbon price that links up and is the same price, you're always going to have a bit of regulatory arbitrage. People are going to say that price sure. is X here and Y there. We can move around. So the idea is to use these things they call carbon border adjustment me measures. It's the CBAMs is the official trade law terminology. They're basically a carbon tariff. And it's not designed to be protectionist. It's just to level the playing field. So if a product here had to pay a $5 carbon price and in another country it had to pay a $2 carbon price, there should be a $3 tariff just levelling the playing field so it's priced everywhere. So in and theory, the, the, the beauty of the CBAM is that it, it becomes redundant. Once you move away from carbon operations, you no longer have to charge it. So it can't be protectionism because it's you do away with it by operating in a carbon environment. A, a yeah, carbon and, environment. and if a country goes and has, the, has a decently priced carbon price, then it doesn't get applied. So, you know, that's the thing. It's The challenge with it is it's theoretically elegant and practically nightmarish. And one of the reasons with this is because actually carbon accounting, it's quite hard, like pick up a product and tell us how much carbon's in it. And yeah. look, a scientist can do a study and publish it in an academic journal that says, oh, we've worked out how much carbon's in the iPhone and things. But to do this for every single product that's traded in an accountable, defensible way, and then you have to think, okay, well, this steel assembly, it was made in China, so the energy came from coal and that produces this much carbon. But this other one was in Japan and they're using gas, but it might have been on nuclear. So, you know, the, the actual practical challenges in placing a product in a global and possibly five or six stages of production so you've got to do that in five or six countries to get back like the practicality of those carbon certificating schemes is is nightmarish to actually do um the country that's blasted ahead with this is the eu that's got a proposal um in fact it's the just <laughs> that yeah it's just come through the um the european parliament last night's made some revisions to it and the way that the Europeans have done this is not ideal. They've basically said you need to get a European carbon accounting certificate, which there are companies, which because all the European countries have carbon pricing regimes, there is a market for those. It's like a certificate of origin, but a certificate for carbon origin kind of thing, certified independently, and you have to pay for it. There's a European one, but if you can't get a European one, which you're not going to be able to get in most countries, you're not going to be able to practically, a European carbon certifier is not working, you know, in province of Vietnam, you'll be basically taxed as if you're the um, just the national level aggregate for your country. So we'll just do a macroeconomic estimate for Vietnam and say that's how much carbon's in your steel assembly because that's how much carbon. So what does that mean for what does that mean for Australian supply chains? So, uh, just be aware of the CBAM uh, or you know, our carbon well, knowledge about our, our, our supply chains is pretty low. Yeah, the first, I mean, the advantage will lie to those who can actually in this system. So it is an advantage if you've got a lower carbon product, which Australia is positioned to do so. We've got a lot of renewables. We're going to be having green hydrogen soon. Our energy is, over the next decade, going to become less carbon intensive than a lot of our competitors. Um, so it gives you a price premium into the markets that are going to do this. The challenge is you're going to have to prove it. 
And so what do we do in terms of carbon accounting systems? Do we have an ecosystem of people who can do this in Australia quickly, cheaply, and reliably so we can access that price premium in the market? Um, that's not really there yet because we haven't had the pricing in Australia, so there hasn't been a need to build that commercial industry. But if we're going to future-proof our trade in a net zero eventually world, we really need to get that kind of you know business service architecture set up in Australia. And we need to make sure it lines up because we can design our own Australian system, but it won't help us in the European market if the Europeans won't accept our certificate. So what we've got to do is really get in terms of those international standards setting Let's get some rules of the road for how you write one of these certificates, who's allowed to do it, what you're supposed to do, and then let, let's let's build the local ecosystem so we can do that because otherwise, if we don't have that, get our house in order on that front, they will be a barrier to our trade. Okay, so where we've got to so far is that um, um, reshoring is not necessarily happening at a rapid rate. We are seeing some other countries pop up, such as Vietnam, to replace ones that are difficult. We need to be aware of carbon trading. What about the issue of, of transport um, container costs or that sort of uh, issue, which is a major issue, uh, and this will lead on to a conversation about inflation, I guess. But where are, we, are we likely to see a reduction in transport costs in Australia anytime soon from what your, your team's learning? Look, there's a couple of factors that have been in play here. One is the shipping disruptions that were global for a while and are still actually they're worse in China now than they had been at any time over the last two years. Um, another one is the factor about fuel prices. So a lot of shipping costs comes from how much the bunker fuel costs to buy and put in the ship, um, which are very high because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine and I would predict they're going to stay pretty constant for a long term as well. So on those two fronts, it's not likely, those two things aren't likely to lessen any. The third part of the whole logistics issue in a country like Australia as well, you do have control of your ports. Um, and so there's these questions around the thing, part of that equation that's in your gift is how efficient is our logistics and stevedoring operation. It might be more expensive to get it to Freo Port, but how we get it off the ship and into the end user's hands is, is within our control. Um, and, you know, there's been enough, there's actually been some rankings that suggest we're really behind the eight ball on this issue in Australia. Um, the World Bank um, and IHS market actually do an annual global poor performance study. Um, and it's pretty sobering reading for Australians in the trade and supply chain area. Um, all of our ports fall in the bottom half of the global ranking, um, including um, some of our ports that are right down the bottom in the bottom 10%. Um, this just makes the supply chain problem worse because you're having to pay more to get us here, but then you're having to deal with those issues and it's not improving. So some of these things are out of our control, but the thing which is in our control, it really needs to sharpen our focus on we need to be far more Southeast Asia-like in terms of how our ports are run. And this could be an opportunity to actually go and look at some of those places like Singapore, places like Yokohama, um, particularly some of, the, some of the Saudi ports as well, which is some of the ones that rank most highly in these rankings, and actually say, what can we do in terms of automation, technology, digitisation to get ours up to scratch to take our part of the problem that we're in control of out of the stack? Yeah, I was going to say a lot of those, a lot of those ports are highly automated, highly automated, and they could be these days with containers. Uh, let's move on. All those issues, so uh, there's, there's a lot of issues arising. And on top of all that is, is there is inflationary pressures around the world. Uh, uh, the US uh, Fed Reserve said that inflation is likely to hit a 40-year high in the US, uh, whereas other, other countries are not so badly affected. China's 
unpredictable, particularly with the the Shanghai port closures. Uh, what that's what's that going to do to their trade? What's the uh, economic team and AI group saying about this? Uh, can you give us a sort of like a quick summary of of how you think this is going to affect it from a supply chain point of view? Is it going to be good for our trade? Uh, you know, is it good for us to sell, or is it going to be harder for us to sell? Well, look, in a way, it looks bad in Australia. It's at five percent. We're just running at five point one percent on the most recent inflation data, which is well outside the two to three percent band that the RBA is comfortable with. Um, however, we also have to look at it in international comparison. Most OECD countries, so uh, wealthy developed countries, are running 9, 10, 11% at the moment. So right. it's historically right. high for us, but it's only about half of what our you know, peers are actually facing. And a lot of that's due to the fact that one of the big drivers of that inflation, which is energy and commodity prices, particularly for food and minerals, um, are going up around the world. We're a net exporter of those. So when... If you're, if you're importing food, it's going to hurt you a lot more than if you're growing it yourself. So Australia's, we could look at it and say this is our big problem here, but we are, spare a thought for your um, counterparts in other countries. Another way to gloss that from a business perspective is you now have an advantage because the inflationary pressures we're under are not what uh, are only half what you, as, at an aggregate level, it will vary between industry, but at an aggregate level, our inflationary pressures are only half of what our competitors are up against at the moment. So that'll level the playing field. Oh well, it, it it does provide it does provide an advantage to some degree to Australian exporters. Um, particularly, it is going to be a challenge for those on the import side because as those prices rise, there's going to be a lot more competition for those products, and we're probably going to have to see central banks around the world slaying the inflation dragon. Um, there's some talk that the US Fed could jack rates a percent at a single one whole percent, a hundred basis points at, a, at the next meeting, which would be phenomenal as that kind of happens and we could that's very likely to push the world towards a recession the question is going to be is can central banks just balance the books or might we tip over so it's not going to be a really pleasant outlook what we again have to do is go and have a look at the stuff is where we've got that competitive advantage um, and try and make try and take advantage of those niches because you can't stop the global problem but you can see what's in our toolbox that we can use to carve out a niche in that environment listeners can't see what I can see. I can see that you've done this whole half hour off the top of your head and it's it's fantastic to be able to tap into that, that great brain of yours. There are no, no, there are no hidden notes on the, on the desk here. James can see me on the video. <laughs> <laughs> just talk off the top of your head. Um, look, in, in just in a couple of minutes, can you tell us about what you and your team does at AI Group? Um, they support this this, this podcast. So, um do an ad. Tell us about your team oh, and how nice. people access the information. Yeah, so um, I'm the Director of Research and Economics at the uh, Australian Industry Group, and we have a team that's effectively the data, economics and data analytics uh, group for AI. Um, we look at work across a number of things. We produce a number of um, leading indicators, so surveys of manufacturing and services companies, which we do on a monthly basis, um, which we produce not just for our members, but actually for the broader Australian community to give a sense of what is happening in industry in Australia over the last four weeks. Um, we can see trends in business coming out far before they turn up in the official data that you get reported three or six months later. Um, and this is really helpful for businesses developing their strategy. Um, and it's also really helpful for policymakers, even the Reserve Bank, thinking about what are we seeing in terms of supply chain, labour availability, uh, investment levels and those kinds of things. 
Um, so we put those products out. Um, but we do a lot of work working with our group member companies to try and help them use that information to develop strategies to manage some of these issues. We can't fix them, but we can give you the information that you need to be able to thrive in these hard times. Good ad. You did well there, Jeff. <laughs> we didn't get a chance to talk about the, the food issue because that's going to be an emerging one as well. So maybe we might get you back on to talk about how that's going to work around the world. But we'll have to see how our friends uh, go over in uh, Ukraine and Russia and, and whatever. It's been a great chat. Thank you very much. Um, I, I, I think it's hard to wrap it up, isn't it? It's confusing as always, but there is opportunities would probably be what came out of, out of your conversation. Yeah, no. It's, thanks so much for having me, James, and thanks for everyone for listening. It's been fun. Cheers. Well, all right. See you. Bye.